and welcome to the Unfuck Your Biz podcast, a show for creatives to encourage and inspire through actionable legal, tax, money, and business topics. I'm Braden Drake, an author, lawyer, tax pro, and educator. If you are ready to get your legal and tax shit legit, you are in the right place. But before we fully dive in, here is a quick word from my sponsors. This episode is brought to you by my free training, The Three Legal and Tax Mistakes Made by New and Experienced Business Owners and How You Can Avoid Them. Here's the thing. There's a few key things we've all got to do to make sure we unfuck our biz. I've seen all the mistakes and I know how to help you get past them. So here's what I want you to do. Go to www.unfuckyourbiz.com, sign up for the free training, watch it, and do at least one of the homework assignments I share in the masterclass. Promise? Okay, now let's dive into the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Unfuck Your Biz podcast. As always, this is your host, Brayden. And today I am the most excited because I am joined by Denise Duffield Thomas, Denise DT. Denise, if you don't already know her, which I'm sure a lot of you probably do, is a money mindset mentor who helps women release their fear of money, set premium prices for their services, and take back control over their finances. So I was a little late to the game. I actually just asked Denise when she released her latest book because I just downloaded it yesterday. It came out last year, but I read her previous book, Get Rich Lucky Bitch, a couple of weeks ago. Denise, I feel like you would really appreciate this because I got about a chapter into your book, uh, really convinced that I was going to finish it before our interview today. And about 10 minutes in, I read the quote, there is no prize in finishing this book in record time. That's true. So I feel like that's a, that's a pretty good intro into the podcast. Um, do you want to share a little bit with my audience about kind of who you are, what your background is, and what it is that you're all about? Yeah, sure. So you know what? I, um, I'm a serial failed entrepreneur. Starting from my very first business when I was like eight years old, I was making bracelets out of wetsuit remnants in the 80s. Fluorescent wetsuit remnants was the thing you're probably too young to remember that craze. Um, but I loved riding around on my bike, finding groups of kids back in the day where you could ride your bike around and trying to sell them these bracelets. And the thing was, I actually didn't make any money out of it because my cost of goods was the same as what I was selling them for. And I didn't realize that until a teacher pointed it out to me in show and tell in front of everyone. And I decided from that really young age that one, it was bad to try and make money out of something. And two, that I was really bad with money and really bad with numbers. And um, so for the next uh, like 20 years, I had a series of failed businesses. And the problem was that I was trying to find a problem and try and solve it, even if I had no business really doing that. And so in my early 20s, I was doing internet dating and everyone sucked at it. So I was like, well, I'll be a dating coach. So I wrote a book about dating. And that was kind of the, I guess, the story of my next couple of businesses. I, was, I would see something and go, oh, no one's doing that. Or everyone sucks at that. Not realizing that uh, it really helps to find something that you love and that you're good at and that people will pay you for. Uh, and it wasn't until my late 20s that I decided I wanted to be a life coach. And I resisted it for a long time because I thought it was super cheesy. 
<laughs> and when I did it, like I was like, oh my God, this is what I should have been paid for, for forever because I always loved as a kid helping people solve problems, telling people what to do, um, which is not the point of coaching, but and <laughs> I don't know, telling, being, telling people what to do is my favorite. So yes, well, that's why I beca- instead of becoming a, li- a life coach, I decided to go into business consulting right? Because of the difference with coaching is like, tell me how you feel about that. Consulting, you're like, this is what I think you should do. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so I moved into that. And then I realized that everybody was really had the same kind of issues that I had around money of feeling like we were really bad at it or um, feeling like money wasn't something we we're allowed to talk about. And so I, I went into this world of like, what if we took all the things we've learned from personal development and personal growth and put it into our money mindset, what would happen? And so I just followed that thread and and realized I love talking about money and I loved helping people with their money mindset. And so I've been doing that full time for 10 years now. And I think the best part about what I do is I love when people tell me all their like deepest, darkest money fears and secrets. It's (laughs) so much fun. And then, um, and then they can join my program and buy my books about, what to do with money. I, I love that. I always share with people, they tell you, I'm sure they have this phrase everywhere, but I heard it all the time growing up. They would always say, don't talk about money, politics, or religion, like at the dinner table or in new company. And I always said, well, yeah. those are my three favorite topics because everything else is just like bullshit and fluff, right? Totally. And you know, this the politics one is a really good example, right? Because the last couple of years, people have been saying, well, you shouldn't talk about politics, stay in your lane, you know, like celebrities shouldn't talk about politics. But politics influences every single part of our life. And even though we live in different countries, what happens in your country totally impacts my country. Um, you know, I have, I have family members in the Australian military. Australia is not at war with people. We go where America tells us to go, right? So everything that happens in politics impacts everybody. And guess what? Same with money. We've been told that it's not polite to talk about money, which means it's really hard for them to people to price up their products and services, to ask for the sale because it feels like we're venturing into an area that we're not supposed to be in. And everyone should be allowed to talk about all of those things. Love it. So I totally agree. I started, I actually started doing profit reports on the podcast because I found so many people People get really comfortable talking about their money once they're having million dollar launches, but no one really wants to talk about it before that. And I think we need to have like more open, honest conversations about it. I do want to kind of step back for a second though and share um, like how you kind of discovered the world of life coaching. Because I know really I hadn't even really heard of that until I got into small business and like the online entrepreneur space. And now it's something that I'm very familiar with. Uh, my, My husband though, he is like a quote unquote normal attorney. And to him, he, I told him I was interviewing a life coach today and he was like, what's that? <laughs> Wait, I, I love hearing this, right? Because sometimes when you're in the bubble of any industry, you think everyone's heard of this. Everyone knows my program. I've run out of customers. Right. So I love hearing that a reminder that there are people outside every single one of our industry bubbles. So for me, it was, I went to um, a Tony Robbins event when I was uh, 19. And part of that afterwards, you signed up for a program and you, you got like connected with a coach. And so I would actually go 
to this coach's office and I remember he was so cheesy and he wore like a purple shirt and a purple tie and he'd get me to close my eyes and he would read me out like NLP for dummies, like uh, exercises and visualizations for NLP for dummies. So that was my first interaction with a life coach and I just thought, wow, this is so weird and a, a little bit kind of cheesy. And so it took me another 10 years to get over that like third head emb- embarrassment that I had for this weird guy into thinking, oh, actually, no, life coaching is about helping people solve problems in their life. And I would get people say, oh, you must like have such weirdos and losers as clients. And the weird thing is a lot of the people who who want to have coaching and are people who like are striving for something in their life, you know, like it's not usually people who are really down in the dumps because I think counseling is definitely where people need to go for that. It's people who see something more for themselves, but they don't know how to get there themselves. And so life coaching for me was, um, you know, an area I resisted for so long, even though it was something that really ticked a lot of the boxes that I was naturally good at. Um, And it really is just that helping people solve problems in their life, not necessarily by having all the answers yourself, but sometimes it's about holding space. Sometimes we need someone to riff with, to, you know, to just to have a conversation with someone that's not our friend, not our family, not our partner, um, to help us come up with strategies for our life um, or to help us be accountable to actions. Like all of that stuff is so, so valuable. And I'm so grateful to the world of coaching, even though my, I guess my introduction to it was a little bit less than ideal. Yeah, I to me that makes a lot of sense. Personally, I'm an external processor, so I feel like none of my ideals ideas feel clear until I've either spoken about them or written them out on a piece of paper. So I definitely see the value in coaching. I also feel like my kind of my personal philosophy, I always tell people, like I'm a personal development junkie because I think it's human nature to want to constantly self-improve. Otherwise, like what do you like, what do you spend your time doing? Exactly. And like, I'm an external processor as well. And so I hire people sometimes, um, not necessarily for their expertise, but it's like accountability in my diary to, to sit and think about that thing, you know, and right. to have somebody who isn't personally connected with it, you know, because if, if I try and do that all, all the time with my husband, like he brings his own stuff to that, right? Oh, and yeah. I, yeah. One of the, I'm sure you know. <laughs> right. One of the other things I love about what you teach about in your books is kind of the art of simplicity and not doing a bunch of shit just because you feel like you need to be working all the time. So I also like, I always make the joke that I ended up joining a mastermind basically just so I could pay people to tell me not to do things. <laughs> oh yeah. They're like, That's no, important. you don't need to, you don't need to add five new revenue streams and like do this and do that. So it's like always stripping it back. So hearing like getting that out of the book, I think is really helpful too. So what I think would be really great to chat about a little bit. Uh, I know in your book, you talk a lot about money um, mindset blocks. Is that what you call them? Mindset blocks. Yeah. You know, you could call them money blocks. You could call them like, you know, like limiting beliefs about money. There's lots of different ways, but it's like a money block is just something that stops you from making the money that you want. Right. And so for some of us, it's conditioning, it's beliefs, it's stories that we've heard about money. It's fear of what would happen if we took that action. Um, It could even be like, this could be right up your alley as well, right? Is unacknowledged fears about what would happen if, for example, we had to pay more tax. 
you know, like, or we would get into trouble in some way. And so many of us have this really deep fear of like the tax man and what that would mean. And, you know, that is for some of us an inherited belief. Some of it's like a cultural thing, you know, tax, the tax man is never like a nice person in movies and TV. Right. Um, And so like, there's so many facets to our money blocks, but it's, like this is my favorite part of it right is to really dig in and find out what people's negative experiences have been around money and often they're very unacknowledged because if you said to someone like would you you know want to make more money everyone would be like well duh of course i would but then it's like but what about this and what about this and what about your stories of belief around this and that when you can have compassion for yourself about why you're not making the money that you want to make is because you've got all these stories and and fears about it the, ta- the tax one is like super bizarre to me. I think it's also because like when that's your niche expertise, you don't really worry about it the same way other people do. But it's like, if I can give you $10 and then I told you you had to give $3 back, would you still want the $10? Yes. Of course, right? But like, here's an example, right? I live in Australia. Um, we were founded as a country, like as in, as in obviously not our traditional owners, but of criminals, people who had made a mistake in England, usually by like not paying their, their debts or their taxes or having some sort of, you know, crime, they all got sent to Australia. And so as a country, we have this like fear around getting things wrong. Um, you know, like there were debtors jail was basically get on a ship and get sent to Australia. Uh if you think of movies and TV, right, the, the, um, like the tax man, especially if you think of like Robin Hood time, right, was like a scary man dressed in black coming around with his bag. And if you didn't have the money, something bad was really going to happen to you. Now, nowadays, if you're late with the IRS, like they're just normal people, right? You, you get a fine, like you're not most gonna, of them. <laughs> most of them, right? But like most people are not going to go to jail over paying tax. But I, I have compassion for that feeling of like deep fear around it. And even just the word sometimes, you know, like it's the ATO in Australia, it's HMRC in the UK, it's the IRS in, in the US. They're not nice. Like if you get a letter from the IRS like you're not going oh I wonder what bliss and joy they've sent me in the post like for most people that's a scary thing to get in the post um for these deep you know deep-seated reasons I call that the IRS hate mail <laughs> it is very scary so I know Denise we share a pretty similar audience so you typically help women with their uh money stuff and I would say probably like 90% of my students are female entrepreneurs what would, aside from the tax thing, what do you think are some of the most common money blocks that you see and hear about? Okay, so there's, there's three really big ones that I see. So the first one is everyone's got a unique relationship with the concept of hard work and money. Um, and this is really universal and it really depends on how much money you had as a kid, but often we all have this underlying belief that you have to work really hard to make money, right? So if your parents were wealthy, they were probably wealthy because they build a lot of hours or they, you know, they, they worked a ton because for most of us, the generation that we grew up in, there wasn't the leverage of the internet, right? So it was like, you had to work like hours for, for money. So your parents could have been really wealthy and you have that 
work hard. Your parents could have been middle class and you might still have that concept that you have to work really hard to make money and doing things that are easy for good money kind of feel a bit weird or you're doing something wrong. But your parents might have been working class and had to work three or four jobs to make money. And so you'll have that similar relationship too. Now, work ethic is great. But the problem is that we're living in a time now where we can really leverage our time and it doesn't quite compute in our brains. And so we kind of actually feel really guilty for using leverage tools like the internet or software. Um, we resist hiring people in our business. We, we try and reinvent the wheel to justify making money. Um, then coupled that with cultural stuff, right? So America is a hustle culture. It's a very work hard culture. And so you feel guilty if you have a business that's too easy or too enjoyable. It feels kind of a bit wrong somehow. Um, for me, I, I felt disrespectful to my mom who worked so hard as a single parent, just making money talking to people, which is essentially what I do. It felt actually kind of disrespectful and it didn't feel like I was earning. It didn't feel like I was worthy of making that money. So if everyone really reflects on their relationship to this work hard culture, um, you'll discover some stuff there that is probably bringing up guilt or sabotage for you. And I'd love to hear Brayden, if you have any, um, insights into that, how that work hard culture is showing up for you. Yeah, I can definitely relate to a lot of those things. I mean, I grew up in Indiana in the Midwest, like pretty middle-class family. So my dad had his own, had his own construction business. So like when I reflect back to childhood, his busiest seasons were in the summertime, like roofing. And I started working with him, I think in third and fourth grade. And we would go to work at like 5.30, 6 in the morning, leave at like 6 in the evening to try to do a whole project. And it's funny because I actually had this conversation with my dad the last time I was home in Indiana. And he just started getting really into flipping houses like in the past five years. And he, <laughs> he was like, if I'd known that I could have made money without working so damn hard, I would have started doing it 20 years ago. But it's, uh, it's interesting because that was the way I was brought up, especially by my grandfather, my, my step grandfather, actually, you know, you have to work hard for your money. It was part of my ingrained principles. And now I, I feel like I do have a little bit of a guilt complex about it, especially, I, especially I feel like uh, my husband works a full-time job, salary job, I mean, where he has set hours. And for whatever reason, I always feel like I should be working when he's working. So I like never want to leave the office at like one in the afternoon when really like all the shit on my to-do list is done. Totally. So it's, I think this conflicting feeling around work and money is, is, is really common, right? And you know, that Midwest values of good, honest labor, you know, like, or a hard day's work for a hard, you know, a good day's pay or whatever it is. Each of us have this unofficial motto that we live by when it comes to money. And it's, come to us you know from a million experiences or a million conversations we've heard and that's such a good example and like mine is is a little bit more subtle than that we always talked about in my family of it's nice to be important but it's important to be nice and I would have heard that like a billion times as a kid and so for me that always comes up of like oh I have to be nice and down to earth and it's not nice to ask for money um, and I can't be too big for my boots right? So we're all living with these unofficial kind of mottos around money and it starts to feel really uncomfortable and you don't even know why really it starts to feel uncomfortable about, oh, I can knock off at one o'clock. You know, who do I think I am? You know? Um, 
and so it's really fun to to explore that now the second one is um especially for women i can't help people and make money or i can't make money by helping people because we feel like these have to be so separate you know and if we look at some like generalizations around gender here and money um, that women are praised for being helpful, for being kind. And that can set up some really tricky things for people when it comes to making money out of doing things that we should be doing for free, i.e. helping people. And that's why for me, it took me a long time to, to realize that being a coach was actually even a job because that's what I just naturally did for people, right? And so this can be really tricky if you're in a profession where you're a health coach or um, you are a spiritual coach or you're doing something that you feel like should be free or is natural to you as breathing. Okay. And I have this a lot with people who are creatives. They feel like they can't make money out of just being creative or helping people with ideas. There's a sense that if they're not following through on things or helping people with all the problems of their life, then they're not worthy of, of, getting paid to do that right and that's that whole thing about do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life but that's the thing that we struggle against right because we go but we can't do that thing because no one's going to pay me to do it because it's too easy and too obvious um and so a lot of people come go full circle right they come back to oh that's the thing i loved doing as a kid or that's the thing i would help people to do if i had all the money in the world but they've gone through all these other like versions of their business, like, oh, well, I'll try this really hard thing first. <laughs> and then see if, like, you know, like, let me create the most difficult business model I can think of. Absolutely. And I think of my friends who are in, like, the accounting or finance industry, and, like, they love doing that as a kid. They totally love doing that as a kid. But, but somehow, like, it's easier because it's a real profession. Whereas some of the newer kind of professions, it's not seen as a real profession. So there's that thing of like, I can't do what I love and make money out of it. Like it's too, it's too obvious or it's too easy or it comes back to the guilt of it's not working hard. So therefore it doesn't count. Yeah. I think there, there's really like almost like two layers of complication in there. It's like the first one is if you're, if, if what you're productizing is knowledge rather than like a deliverable, like that's kind of the, like the first like the first issue, if that's making any kind of sense. The second yeah. one then is like, if you're in an industry or a job that seems to be like fun, right? So for me, like in my courses and everything and consultations, I'm providing knowledge. It's not really a product. So I do have a lot of people who want to just like DM me legal questions on Instagram. I'm like, it doesn't really work like that. But on the other hand, I feel like when I tell them, well, I'm an attorney, like you got to book a consultation. I don't get a lot of pushback when maybe some people in more creative fields at least feel like they might if they, if they really stand their ground. I'm not sure. No, there is something there too about um, like knowledge being, you know, such a, a commodity now. Um, whereas, you know, it was a, a little bit harder, I suppose, to quantify that. Um, and if you, if you would do it all day for free, awesome. You're probably in the right industry, but you should totally charge people for it. <laughs> yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make money on that shit. Right. I, I feel like I'm telling people, I feel like I'm telling people all the time. They need to start charging for strategy sessions or like charging for coffee chats or whatever. It's a thing. It's totally yeah. a thing, but even, but so is creativity. Like the amount of people that I hire to help me brainstorm a product name, all of my book titles, I've hired somebody 
to help me brainstorm that. Like that is a thing that people pay for. Right. Um, and we, we totally discount that, that we can't, you know, help people and, and make money. But the third one is pretty similar, but another nuance to it. Right. And this is, I have to give up something for money. Um, and everyone's got their own version of that. Right. So mine is, I have to give up being liked and being humble and being down to earth. And like, so that it hits me like every, like every income plateau that I get to, I'm like, well, people have liked me up until now, but they totally won't like me if I double my income. So that's my thing. Right so there. how do you, how do you get over that? Well, you have to figure out what yours is. So for some people it's, I can't be a good mom. So it's like, I can make money or I can be a good mom. And so your business might be doing really well, but then you feel really guilty about neglecting your kids, which probably isn't true. And then you spend all your time with your kids and then your business dies. For some people it's love, right? And you might've seen this with your friends. Um, they're doing great in their business, but they can't, they can't get a date or they are attracting really shit, you know, partners, but then they have a great relationship and they just let their business die because they feel like they can't have both. They have to give it up. For some people it's health. They feel like, um, maybe they've had a job that burnt them out. And so when their business starts to make a similar amount of money, they sabotage it because they feel like it's, it has to be one or the other. So the key is to find out what yours is. And I'd be curious if you've had an insight about what yours could be. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. So I've thought about it a lot. Um, it's hard for me to pinpoint it. I feel like I would need to do a lot of journaling or maybe some coach, some one-on-one -on -one coaching. <laughs> yeah. But I, well, for some people it could be integrity. Like you feel like at some point you would lose your integrity or you'd lose yeah. your friends or you would lose your ethics or mine. I think I think the root of mine would have to do with like the first bit you were talking about, which is kind of the humility aspect. Um, Cause you know, I come from like pretty humble roots. So it's that whole, you know, like, well, rich people are assholes kind of a thing. Totally. <laughs> totally. And I think that's where, especially if you've never met any people who are rich, right? Because if you've only got a like a one dimensional view of what that means, it could come from a cartoon, it could come from TV or, you know, a show or a movie. And so you haven't been able to see that, oh, rich people are just normal like everyone else. And there's the whole spectrum of nice and rich and environmentally friendly and rich and ethical and rich and in love or humble or whatever it is because you only see it as a cardboard right especially figure. it's like if you grow up watching the apprentice and now with the current state that we're in all this really does is reinforce all of your negative thoughts about wealth it totally does and so there's this like feeling that again you're going to have to give up something right and at some point you're going to turn into that version because maybe you can't see yourself as being exactly who you are and being wealthier and I know I had this vision in my head of like oh rich Denise is definitely going to be like super thin she's going to be really nice to people all the time she's going to be perfect um you know she's not going to have all the bad habits that like gross Denise has and it's like when you can realize that they're one and the same and actually you're not going to change that much. You know, you could talk to my friends from high school and they're going to be like, yep, she's the same good and bad as she was in like grade three. So in your, um, in, in your mind, yeah. you were going to turn to like Gwyneth Paltrow and become the co-owner of, of Goop. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because there was just this separation, right? Because I felt like I'd have to give up. And like, I was looking at my closet the other day. I've got like one pair of heels. 
I thought I'd be a bit more glamorous and well-dressed when I was wealthy, but it turns out I'm just not that into that and that's okay. Um, I'm actually sitting, so we've got a, we've built a, you know, really expensive, beautiful house. I'm sitting in my office. I have no furniture in my office. We've lived here for, for four months. And I, just before I was on with you, I was like, I really should just get a desk and a chair. Like I'm sitting on the floor. Oh, you're sitting on the, I didn't realize you were sitting on the floor. I thought you were like perfectly perched in front of your, like a video wall or something. No, no. Because the wall does look Um, very great. Oh, it's a beautiful wall. And it was a very expensive wall too, to, um, to have custom made, but I have no freaking furniture. And so I'm still really lazy. And I think there's something there. There's something there about if I buy furniture for this house, then I'm acknowledging that I'm rich. Something so weird about it. <laughs> so I'm dealing with my money stuff all the time. Another one I'm dealing with right now is resilience. I realize I have a story that you have to struggle. You have to have no money to be resilient Um, because now we live in this amazing house. I've got like heated floors in my bathroom and there's sometimes I'm like, I can't use the heated floors because what if I get too used to having warm floors and then I can't freaking live in the world and I'm not resilient anymore because I've got a story that my growing up, that this is the reason why I'm rich because I'm freaking resilient. And so I realize it's that story of having to suffer um, to, to make more money. So I'm constantly finding new layers. Of well, when, you, when you're ready to go furniture shopping, you just let me know because I already have half of the restoration hardware catalog memorized. Oh my God. I wish we had that in Australia. We don't. We only don't just have, have Pottery Barn now. No. Okay. So I worked I at West Elm for two years. So I'm also a big kind of a fan of, of West Elm, like for your house, I love West Elm. restoration hardware. Well, I am curious. This is a really nosy question. What is, um, I don't know if you do this, but if you did, if you were to do this, if you yeah. were to celebrate like a big launch, what do you buy yourself to celebrate? That's what I want to know. Cause I know you said you're not into okay. like super nice clothes. No, I'm and, like, not. Um, no, I have one designer bag that Mark bought me for celebration or something. And I'm like, that's nice. And then I, I, I always use my like billabong, um, you know, the free canvas bags that they give you when you buy stuff from like billabong. Because when I was growing up, billabong was like the store, right? And sometimes I have to remind myself that I can actually afford things at billabong. <laughs> <laughs> is, that an, is, so what, is that an Australian company? Yes, it's like a surf yeah. brand. Right. Yeah. Um, and like for me growing up, it was like, oh my God, I really want like a, a billabong surf jumper. My mom would buy me like an imitation one from Target. And I'd just be like, ah. so now I'm sometimes I'm like, oh, billabong. And then like, I'll go in and go, oh, I literally can afford to buy everything in here. Um, so for me, I, I have actually really struggled with the concept of celebrating because part of my money personality is I'm someone who it's never enough. You never did good enough. There was always room for improvement and you have to move on to the next thing. Um, and this is a, this is a really big part of my money personality that I have to watch of like, yeah, cool. And like, we did a, we did a um, million dollar launch in January. Right. And I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> like I really was. And I have to, I have to watch that. So what do I buy? Um, I don't know. What did I buy recently? You haven't like upgraded, you haven't upgraded the minivan yet? 
Oh my God, no, but I call that the Jeff Mobile because I bought it when I um, we won the Jeff Walker affiliate competition, which was like a $100,000 prize. I was like, I want to buy a minivan and call it the Jeff Mobile. I, um, I'm really into real estate. And so I bought a rose farm about a year and a half ago because I wanted a, like a cottage. I actually really wanted um, a place where I could just sit and read a book. And I ended up buying like a $2 million rose farm. <laughs> That sounds, that sounds beautiful though. I'm kind of like, I, I don't, in my mind, I have no concept of what that really is, but I'm picturing the cottage and the holiday. And I know Australia is very different from the UK, but still. Um, yeah, it is a little bit like that. Um, and I fell in love with this beautiful cottage, but it just happened to come with a rose farm attached. And now, <laughs> now I'm motivated to do stuff in my business because like we're building a barn and like the barn roof costs, you know, like a hundred thousand dollars to replace it. And so I can get excited about selling things in my business because it's going to something like that, which actually really does motivate me. So um, the thing I get really excited about at the moment is I love going to thrift stores and buying old hardcover books, um, like 80s and 90s decorating books that have really beautiful covers. Um, but like, for, that's like $20, right? So I'll, <laughs> yeah, like you can, it's, the most I've spent in a charity shop is like $1,000 and I got like, three couches, two diet, like two full on dining sets with like chairs and tables and like a big couch. Um, but that I was feel so like, exciting. I feel like we could be polar opposites because I took your quiz. What's the, what's yep. your quiz called? The money archetype quiz. Yeah. The money archetype quiz. What do you, what do you think my money archetype is? I, okay. I'd have to ask you a couple of questions. Okay. For that. Okay, I'm pretty positive. I remember what it was. Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you like spreadsheets? You really into spreadsheets? Kind of, yeah. Okay. Are you? Do people call you frugal, or do people tease you about um, buying stuff all the time? I like to shop a lot. Okay, so you, I would say you're probably the celebrity archetype. Is that something that came up for you? Yeah. If you're a shopper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I got so the polar opposite. Yeah, I got the celebrity archetype because I was going to tell you my. Um, like all my friends on Instagram, they tease me, but anytime I have a successful launch, I celebrate by buying a new pair of Birkenstocks and that's like become my thing. Okay, <laughs> I love that. So what's really interesting about that too, that archetype is um, it's a really important archetype to role model self-care to other people because some people really struggle buying themselves things um, I practice a, too much yeah. self-care. <laughs> yeah, that, and that can be the problem, right, is, is doing that. But the idea of working on your money blocks is to have enough money to be, do, and have everything you want guilt-free. And for some people, right. that's Birkenstocks. And for, for other people, it could be, you know, real estate. Or it could be so for the celebrity archetype, is there actual, I would, I'm just assuming, um, there, for me, there might be more money blocks around actually saving money that's more my problem. 100%. Um, you know, which is why it's really interesting knowing what your archetypes are, right? Because uh, like money advice is totally different because for some people saving, which is the accumulators, saving is second nature to them. Like they have saved since they're a little kid. Like they've always got these rainy day funds and it's never rainy enough. Even now, like during global pandemic, they're like, I don't think it's rainy enough to dip into my savings account. Um, but then there are other people who really, really struggle saving even a dollar, you know, and that would feel really awkward for them having extra money in their bank account that they don't quote unquote need or use. And they'll find a home for that dollar. <laughs> um, 
so I think that's what what really shifted for me is realizing that there's no one size fits all for money advice or even business advice because we've all got different personalities when it comes to money and how we value it, use it, save it, spend it, etc. Um, and I, I see this in my kids, even though they're so young, I can see their money personalities already playing out and they might shift over time, but I can see them, even though they've, they don't have money, like their kids, I can see it already. Do you have, or one, is one of your kids like hoarding quarters in like the corner of their closet or something? No, I have no accumulator <laughs> children at all, but I have, um, ruler children. I have two, like my youngest is a ruler so they can be like the bossy ones um and you know what's fascinating about this a lot of time when you learn your archetype it's about unlearning the things you were teased about as a kid right which is why some people really struggle with finding the easy and obvious business ideas because they were like shamed out of it as a kid so often accumulators were shamed out of saving money as a kid celebrities were shamed out of wanting to be in the spotlight or liking nice things as a kid. Um, romantics were teased about being lazy as a kid. Um, you know, like connectors were teased about making friends with people and wanting to, wanting to be around people or wanting to be at parties or um, who else is there? The Mavericks were teased about their out of the box thinking and like their rebellion. So it's, it's almost like, like loving that part of yourself that you were like as a kid. You know, and for me being the ruler, like I was teased about being bossy. And so I really struggled with like putting myself out there as a businesswoman because I like I still had these unresolved like hurt feelings about being bossy and being a know-it-all, even though like that's totally my strength. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it. I always, so I'm actually like borderline obsessed with the Enneagram. I don't know how into it you are. What's your Enneagram type? Um, I always forget, but it's the, you know, like the entrepreneur one who has all the ideas and I think so I can't remember exactly um I love personality tests right yeah three is the achiever okay so yeah it's interesting like um Rachel Hollis is a three and Jasmine Starr is a three I like no it's my this is my party trick you guys I'm really nosy and I ask everyone their Enneagram type and so then I just always share. So that is really interesting. I'm a seven, which is the enthusiast, and they're known to be the most gluttonous, which is why your quiz result was not all too, all too surprising. <laughs> Fun. So if people want to take your quiz, where would they go to do that? Um, I'm pretty sure it's still up live. It's at denisedt.com slash quiz. Okay. If, if that link doesn't work for you, you can just tell the people to DM me because we take it on and offline depending on, on our launch cycle. But what's really fun about it too, like I guess like the Enneagram, like any personality test, it kind of does feel like you have a bit of a superpower when you can understand where people are coming from and understand what motivates them because every money archetype has their different motivation, right? And for celebrities, like there's this deep-seated need to be loved and admired and but often that was kind of almost beaten out of you as a kid in some ways because you know maybe you were called a show off or you teased about liking nice things and sounds like you're over that and you like can do it without guilt but I was reading Elton John's autobiography recently and he's a celebrity archetype obviously but he was saying how he just doesn't feel any guilt about it he's like it brings me so much joy the only trouble is there was a time in like the 90s 
because he hadn't opened any of his financial statements for years, like he didn't realize his bills weren't being paid. And so he was like, I'm, a, I'm making all this money. So of course I can like buy my auntie a car for no reason. Of course I can spend $200,000 a week on fresh flowers. But the problem with that archetype sometimes is just not wanting to know and not wanting to look at the numbers. But if now he looks at the numbers and he also spends guilt-free. So it's totally kind of okay. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I also always like to think and like think about why people like nice things because everyone likes nice stuff for different reasons, right? For some people, yeah. it's a status symbol. I don't really feel like I have that as much. I just genuinely appreciate like high quality things. Like uh, my husband always laughs at me because he, he got a new Audi last year. So it's really nice. And whenever I get in the car, whenever he lets me drive it, I like feel the leather wrapped steering wheel. It's almost like I'm petting the surfaces of the car. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? Like, it's so nice. It's so pretty. I want to appreciate it. That kind yeah, of thing. Celebrities can be very tactile mm-hmm. with stuff. And I've got a celebrity friend and I remember she was like, oh, I love your you know, dress. Where'd you get it from? And I was like, Target. And she went, Ugh. she was like, I don't like it anymore. <laughs> like that's bitchy. <laughs> yeah, it was, but it was, it was for her when we dived into like her money stuff too. It's like, you know, she had to have the target thing. And so now it's like, you know, for her, it's, it's almost a reminder that she doesn't have to live like that. And for me, I had to overcome that around thrift stores, right? Because as a kid, it was like, just the idea of it made me feel poor. Whereas now I go and find those like beautiful hardcover books and I feel really wealthy. I love it. that. So, One of my, yeah. my, um, my personal style philosophy is that you can make anything look luxurious if you have really nice accessories. So I wear 100%. Lululemon pants and Target t-shirts every day. That's my wardrobe. And then it is like, a superpower of celebrities too, <laughs> right? Like ce- celebrities can make anything look like a million, a million bucks. Like look at Marilyn Monroe when she talked about being able to wear like a potato sack. And um, so that is, a, that is a gift of a celebrity too. And what's really fun was when you see people's combinations play out. Cause you're really like, you're really a combination of your top three archetypes. Right. And so you might have someone who's a celebrity accumulator who actually feels like, how can you be both? But they know how to look like a million bucks on a small budget. Um, and that's really fun seeing people's combinations. Yeah, I feel are. like um, when I looked at the results, the other one that really resonated, I think, was the, was the Maverick type. Mm-hmm. If I remember right. I'll have to go look at the yeah. results again. Okay. Yeah, the Maverick, yeah, out of the box thinking and um, doing things in a different way. So yeah, that's really fun. Yeah. I always like to think about how you can really mix it up, especially like being an attorney because most lawyers suck and I don't, I don't want to suck. So I got to do things a little bit differently. Okay, fun. So if people, um, want to check out all of your stuff, where's the best place for them to go? Okay, so all my books are on Amazon. So we've got them in Kindle, paperback, and Audible, uh, read by me, if you like my voice. And um, I am really easy to find on the internet. So my website is denisedt.com, and that's also all my social handles. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter is all at denisedt. I tend to hang out on Instagram the most, though, and I love it when people, like, send me a, a screenshot of the page that they're reading in my book, or they send me... Um, a message of what they've done out of listening to this conversation. I'm a Virgo. I love being of service. So if you tell me like a practical action you've taken, it's like, Oh yes, thank you. 
I'm I'm also <laughs> a Virgo, okay. so we'll have to chat about that because I don't really know very much about astrology personally. We'll have to talk about. Oh, that. see, I would love for one of my next books to be about your money, um, your money personality, and your astro sign. I think that would be really really fun. Well, let me know when it's ready for pre-order, and I'll get my copy. Yeah, that'd be really fun. Oh, actually, another project I'm working on is money blocks by by industry. So I'm going to have a series of like, you know, money blocks for lawyers, money blocks for accountants, money blocks books. for dance teachers. Yeah. What? How much? How much time do you spend writing? Um, I'm actually working with someone on that because the, okay, I was like, that's like, like, like a lot. <laughs> I know, but I because I'm an ideas person, right? And so the way I channel that creativity is all roads lead to boot camp. And so I can do whatever I want as long as eventually it leads someone to working with me in my money boot camp. And so that's a really great way I've, I've managed to channel what could be a sabotage, right? And I see people sabotaging by like creating all these different programs, using their creativity that way. I use my creativity that way. Nice. I like that. Like yeah. We could do a whole podcast on that because I love the simplicity of the structure you have set up in your business. So I'm the same way. I always want to create new offers. Really what you're saying is you basically you're pouring all of your creativity into like different sorts of top of funnel, like marketing activities, right? Absolutely. Um, and not necessarily in the way people think. Like I'm not like, oh, an opt-in, a book, a blah, blah, blah. One of my, I guess, funnel things is my face is my fortune, right? And so the no like and trust factor is also a very valid way of leading someone to boot camp, which gives me even more scope to do like fun stuff or weird stuff on social media sometimes because it's part of my nefarious plan for people to know, like, and trust me. <laughs> Love that. Well, I have, this is kind of a self-serving question that I'm going to yeah, ask. Go. So I have a good friend who's a book coach and writing a book is on my to-do list, but I don't want to dive in before I'm ready. So curious to get your input on when do you think the right time is to write a book really to help like with your brand? Yesterday and then the next best time <laughs> is today. Um, so let me give you like why I think this is super important, right? So right at the start of my business, um, like 2010, very unknown. I published, self-published my first book in 2011. Sorry, no, not even my first book. It's probably like my 10th book. My first book in this kind of industry. If you, you know, if you don't count internet dating tips for men and all my other random books. I kind of um, want to go, I kind of want to go check those out. I might find them. Oh, you can't find it anymore. It's out of print. And then you can't find Get Hitched Lucky Bitch, which was also a book. That's like my soulmate <laughs> book. No, but anyway, um, so I was like, no one's going to be offering me a publishing contract. So why don't I just self-publish myself using these new tools that we have available to us? Amazon make it really easy for anyone to self-publish for good and bad reasons, right? Um, and so I self-published Lucky Bitch in 2011 and then Get Rich Lucky Bitch in 2012. And then every year or so I updated it. You know, I was like, oh, there's some typos. Oh, that cover's really crap. Um, but having a book got me on podcasts. It got me, um, like talking on stage. It gave me something to sell when I went somewhere. It got me to networking events. It, it really added so much credibility, even though it was so bad. Like the first version is just terrible. I keep it though, like as a freaking, uh, like talisman of like, look what this book has built. And I joke that this 
house that I live in, this new $7 million house is the house that Lucky Bitch built, which is my first self-published book. That's why I keep a copy of it like to look at because I'm like, this book is worth millions of dollars. <laughs> okay, so I love that. So you're basically yeah. saying just write it and then you can write updated editions. Because I guess my, like my, normally I'm a person who just dives straight into projects and like, don't tempt me Good. too much, Denise, or I'll have 40 pages written by the end of this weekend. But my, I guess my, my kind of roadblock is, is I want it to be, I want the book to be Unfuck Your Biz with Brayden. And I feel like the, uh, I need to get a certain number of students through my program to have enough case studies and to have validated the process before I go publishing a book on it. No, it comes the other way around. So you actually don't need that many case studies to get started. I'm sure you've helped more than enough people to fill some case studies in a book, right? As well as all the other stuff you're going to share. Um, but we think we need all of the things first before we do the book and the book leads to those leads to more of those things so you know if not for writing my book I wouldn't have had 6,000 people go through my program because they probably wouldn't have heard of me okay like, that's it fair just, it is what it is so you kind of um, and the, the thing is self-publishing book, a book doesn't um, mean that you can't publish it later on Hay House um, bought Chillpreneur as a brand new book but they also republished my other two self-published books so Get Rich Lucky Bitch that you read at Christmas you know, the first version of that came out in 2012 that was terrible. And then I've just added new things and then I revamped it for when Hay House published it as a real book. They wouldn't have done that if I hadn't done the first shitty version that was like written in half US English, half UK English, had spelling mistakes, like, you know, it had a terrible cover. And you won't be able to, even if you tried really hard, you wouldn't be able to create a crappier version than my book because... <laughs> the self-publishing tools are so much better now, right? Your standards will be higher than mine. Yeah, I'll, I'm I'll, I'll, so. I'll plug my friend Jody. She runs a group program called The Right Life. So she's been a book editor for 15 years. And I already told her she's probably going to reserve my spot in the, in the fall version for that. So, Well, then pay for that and make it happen, right? Because there's, it's one of those things with books, right? Like, it's not just going to happen. You have to make space for it. And for me, I had to have a deadline. So that first version of Lucky Bitch, I said to people, I've got a book that's coming out on the 7th of September, 2012, which was my birthday. Never do that. It ruins your birthday. It might sound like it's really fun to launch something on your birthday. It's not. But it made me finish it. You know, like, I didn't finish my university thesis until I had a freaking deadline, and I wrote it in three weeks. Um it doesn't happen until you have a deadline. And so pay the deposit, get pre-orders for the book. Like, otherwise it's never, it's just going to go away. Okay. So I'll, I'll do that. I'm gonna, now going to say, uh, Denise DT, life coach, money coach, and book coach. I'll send you a copy when I get it written. Um, yeah. One th I was going to say one thing I was going to share that I totally forgot to mention earlier in your book, Get Rich Lucky Bitch. One of the things I thought was really fun was it's a very simple tip. It's like one sentence out of your entire book when you recommend people give their bank accounts really fun names. Yes. So, so what I did, one of the phrases that I got all the time as a kid from my mom, she still laughs about it. Whenever I would ask for something, my celebrity archetype would want some nice shit for my birthday or whatever. And she would say, well, go outside and pick it off the money tree. You know, that was her go-to phrase. Have you heard that one a lot? The money yeah, tree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Um, I teach cash flow inside of my programs. And so I shared your tip inside of my course textbook. 
and cited it, of course, told everyone to go buy a copy and shared with them that I named my business income account, my money tree. So that's that. the name of my income account. And then my personal money mantra is my tree will grow and produce fruit when I care for it. I love that. I love that. And it's so true. There's always more money. Um, you know, there's always more growth and it can be there for you forever. Like some trees last thousands of years, right? <laughs> yeah. So I did the money tree and then my tax account is just titled civic duty because I feel like, oh, I love that. yeah, because I am a self self-confessed, like very liberal person. So I feel like if you are going to be a strong advocate for social programs, then you also need to take pride in your own tax payments as well. So I think that's, um, I had all of my students in the last round of the course, they all named, because they all open like about five bank accounts. They have to give them all fun names. I love that. Mine, um, mine is Money Loves Me is one of mine. And, you know, it, it's really fun seeing that every time you log into your bank account. Yeah, I like that. So super fun. Okay, any um, last parting words that you want to share with my audience before we wrap up? Uh, this was so much fun. Um, let me think. I, I love the, the thing that you said about taxes, right? Because my tax bill is, is pretty big. You know, like I'll pay something like $800,000 in taxes in a year. And <laughs> yeah, right. And Do you know what your effective but, tax rate is in Australia? Um, uh, overall, like when it all averages out, because we have the, the tax Graduated. as well. It's about 24% that I usually pay. Um overall okay so I was terrified in my first year of paying taxes I was terrified of reaching the threshold where I'd have to start charging people taxes as well and so this is a really good exercise for people to do right you think about your money goal go and have a look there's so many calculators around um, where you can see how much tax you'll have to pay because so many people think oh I want the million dollars and then you look at the tax and you might go fuck right but you have to be okay paying tax where you are so then you can handle the $800,000 tax bill. And like, I would love to make $10 million. Like that's my, like, it's not a super strong goal for me. Like I'm curious about what it would be like to make $10 million. So I'm just like sitting with it and holding it lightly. And I haven't yet gone to see what the taxes are for that because I'm just like, oh, I don't want to know. I'm like, eh. but like I'm okay now paying $800,000 a year taxes. So, you know, maybe I'd be okay with the next one, right? So start with, like, I, I totally agree with you about the civic duty. If you feel good about paying taxes now and really shift and change that for you, you'll feel good about, you know, the civic duty that you have, which is a total blessing to go to that next level as well. And I'm super grateful that I can pay tax and pay back because, I, you know, I was on welfare most of my life as a kid. I, I got student loans and grants and... Um, you know, all of the things really growing up. And so I feel freaking amazing that that investment in me has paid off really well for the Australian government. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, um, so yeah, feel good about paying tax. The other thing I like to tell people to do is I'm not, I'm not really sure how business structure works in Australia, but do you, in your own business, do you do both salary and profit payments to yourself as the owner of the yes. company? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yep. So we do, like I recommend, even if you're not making enough money to be structured as a corporation, I always recommend that people save for profit and to make it a little bit more bearable, I tell people to make their quarterly profit distributions 
the same day they pay their quarterly taxes. So you get a little bit of payment, a little bit of reward. Oh, see, that sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, and then you can go shopping or something. Okay, well, thanks so much for coming on, Denise. Uh, I would love to have you back on to do a proper report sometime. I think that would be really fun. We can talk about your $10 million goal. Yes, that would be super fun. And thank you for having me. And um, thanks, everyone. I'll see you on the internet. Perfect. So everyone, I will share all of Denise's links in the show notes. So you can always check those out at unfuckyourbiz.com. As always, if you loved the podcast, which I'm sure you did, make sure you subscribe, make sure that you subscribe and leave a review. And I will be back in your earbuds and your podcast app in a few short days. Have a good one. Hey there, before you go, I wanted to give a quick thanks. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. If you loved it, I would love for you to take a screenshot of the episode or snap a quick selfie while you are listening. Share it on social and give me a tag. It'll help other kick-ass entrepreneurs like yourself find the show. That's it for today. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Meanwhile, let's roll up our sleeves and unfuck that biz.